Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the prophecy of Daniel, chapter 2, verses 26 through 45. Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 26. Let's give ear now to the word of God. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, Thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes, who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven. He has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, 
Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. And let us turn now to chapter 7 as we read the first 28 verses of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, beginning in verse 1. Let's listen again to God's word. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. 
its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and giving, given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I wished to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings." He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High, 
His kingdom is an everlasting dominion, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing, let's turn back to chapter 2 of Daniel's prophecy as we focus our attention upon verses 44 and 45. Here we're told, verse 44, and in the days of these kings, speaking of the fourth kingdom in this series of kingdoms represented in that great image with the golden head. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And verse 45 Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Here we find ourselves this evening considering the book of Daniel. And this is a book that was written during a very dark time in the history of God's covenant people. It was written by the prophet Daniel while he was in Babylonian exile. Uh, this is uh, a Jew, probably from uh, a noble or aristocratic, even perhaps a royal family within the kingdom of Judah. And he was taken captive by the Babylonians and forcibly brought to the capital of the Babylonian Empire in Babylon itself uh, to serve under King Nebuchadnezzar. This is a dark time. This is, for the people of God, in some sense, the worst of times. It represents a period in their history in which God is chastening them and judging them and casting them out, spewing them out of the promised land into bondage to idols and to idolaters in the land of their enemies. Here they are, Daniel and his friends and his countrymen, swallowed up in the belly of the beast of this great kingdom of Babylon, this aspiring world empire that mercilessly slaughtered the Jews, destroyed the temple, and wreaked havoc on the known world. This is a kingdom that is dominated not purely by idols and paganism, but at its heart, a kingdom that from the very outset in the book of Genesis, Genesis uh, chapter 11, this kingdom of Babel or Babylon is marked by humanism. Uh, from, from the outset, as I said, they built that tower which they desired to erect up into the heavens as a testimony to their great name in rebellion against God himself. And the kingdom of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar was no different. 
You'll recall that when Nebuchadnezzar threatened Daniel's three friends that if they wouldn't bow down to the golden image, he would throw them in the fiery furnace. He says, uh, what God can deliver you from my hands? So it's not so much the, the gods of Babylon versus the God of Israel, but it's Nebuchadnezzar himself against the God of Israel. Who will deliver you from my hands? Uh, this is great Babylon that I have built. Uh, and Babylon really is a, a picture, as, you, as we see in Isaiah 14, It's the embodiment of Satan himself and his agenda in the world. I will be like the Most High. I will ascend into the heavens. It's a satanic, humanistic kingdom that really is is a representation of Satan's humanistic agenda in the world from Genesis even into the book of Revelation. And so God's people are in the belly of the beast, swallowed up by a humanistic culture and a humanistic pagan religion. And here's Daniel in this period of desolation, writing the book of Daniel under inspiration. This is a book that lifts up the perspective of God's people to consider the global outlook of the kingdom of God. The book of Daniel is one of the first books in the Bible where you see a repeated emphasis upon God as the God of heaven. You see in Daniel chapter 2, that's repeatedly used to describe Jehovah, that he is the God of heaven. Previous prophets would have emphasized that he's the God of Israel. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's set up his people in the promised land. He's the Holy One of Israel, and that's the case. But as God's people were scattered through this Babylonian exile and through the Assyrian invasion to the north, and all of these events served to broaden the perspective of God's people. You had Jews living in every nation under heaven by the time you get to the first century, for sure. And so they were beginning to see that though God is the God of Israel, He's not limited to Israel. And they can be thousands of miles from Israel, and God is still their God because heaven is His throne, and the earth is but His footstool. And the house of God in Jerusalem is a wonderful ordinance, but God is still the God of heaven ruling in his heavenly temple one way or the other. And you see this emphasis as well in Ezra and Nehemiah, the God of heaven. It's a biblical theological development of the doctrine of God through the experience of God's people during this unsettling time. This is a book that is also dominated by the theme of predictive prophecy. This is a book that includes numerous uh, prophecies. We've read some of them that deal, again, with the global outlook of the kingdom of God, of the, the international, transnational plan of God with respect to his people leading up to the coming of Christ and beyond until the second coming. There is prophecy that not merely confronts people for their sin, that's a major aspect of prophecy in the Old Testament, forth-telling, as they say in the seminaries, forth-telling, confronting people for their sin on the basis of God's law. But this book of Daniel includes and emphasizes predictive prophecy, what we typically think of when we think of the word prophecy. Foretelling, predicting the future, specific events, specific figures, specific historical developments, in chronological sequence throughout history. You can 
look, if you had the time, you could look at Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27, one of the most famous and decisive prophecies of the coming of Christ in all the Bible. This would have been the prophecy that most likely drew the attention of the wise men to the timing of the birth of the Messiah. Uh, it speaks of 77s that separate uh, this uh, great event of restoring the city and the temple in Jerusalem. The time, timing of that can be uh, best identified to speaking, by speaking with Mr. Hughes. He has an amazing handout that's the best resource I've ever seen on that particular prophecy. But it chronicles it from the, the moment that that city and temple was restored. There's a specific date that's identified. And then there are 69 sevens, 69 weeks of years, 483 years between that and the birth of Christ. And Jesus is born right on time. And it's something that, uh, or, or others say that it's leading up to his, his death on the cross. The point is, talk to Mr. Hughes, but it leads up to the, the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies right on time, and that's why there was such messianic expectation in the first century in Jesus' day, because of that prophecy. So there's very specific instances of detailed, predictive prophecy in the book of Daniel, and therefore it highlights for us the importance of God's plan in history. Uh, sometimes when we think of prophecy, all we can think about is the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, but Daniel reminds us that God is also the God of the intervening history in between the, the, the great events of redemptive history. God is sovereign, orchestrating the rise and fall of men and nations, and this needs to be part of our eschatology, part of our study of the last things, of the future things, of, of the prophetic things of the Bible. This is part of our hope, not merely for the Old Testament saints, the Messiah is going to be born, and not merely for the New Testament saints, Messiah is going to return, but also the intervening history among the nations which the Bible specifically predicts in Daniel. God gives his people a historical prophetic roadmap between the end of special revelation for that 400 years before the coming of Christ when John the, the, the Baptist began to preach again, 400 years of silence. They had a prophetic historical roadmap from the Lord to understand the major events between that end of the closing of the Old Testament canon and the coming of Christ. This is important uh, because the book of Daniel sets forth prophecies that are very similar to the book of Revelation. You, you read the prophecies of Daniel and you see not only is it a similar structure and style in presenting these visions, but in point of fact, many of the visions of Daniel are simply taken up by John and built upon and continued. The imagery, the significance, the identification of the characters these two books are so intimately connected and many seminaries will have a class on Daniel and Revelation. Sometimes they'll throw in Ezekiel as well because of some of the, some of the similarities there. But, but Daniel provides us with this sort of apocalyptic literature, these prophetic visions that predict historical events between the days of the prophet and the coming of Christ. And of course, Revelation functions in the same way. It provides us with a prophetic roadmap for that P 
period in between when the canon of the New Testament is closed and the second coming of, the, of Christ arrives. The book of Revelation provides us with the, the same type of roadmap, and scholars often refer to this as historicism. And I would say it's, it's fairly certain that virtually all Reformed Christians would interpret the passages that we read in our Scripture reading as historicists. We're all historicists when we read these prophecies. We all recognize that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are the head of gold, and then there's you know Medo-Persia, the Greeks, uh, the Romans, so on and so forth. We all recognize that there are historical individuals and nations that are specifically prophesied in chronological order in these visions. When we interpret Daniel, we're not idealists. We don't say, well, the head of gold is a certain theme, and it just really kind of has this general theme that gives us a... No, it's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's a specific prophecy about a specific kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon, and it refers to a specific king, Nebuchadnezzar. We don't interpret the book of Daniel in terms of uh, preterism. We don't say, well, Daniel's only speaking about events that happened in his immediate contemporary context, and then that's it, because he's so urgent, it's only dealing with his own day. No, we're not preterists. None of us are in interpreting these prophecies. We see these prophecies as unfolding over the course of centuries beyond the days of the prophet himself. We see it as, in other words, integrated into the historical timeline between the day of the prophet and the coming of Christ, this being his first coming. We don't interpret the book of Daniel uh, as Reformed Christians uh, according to futurism. We don't look at these prophecies as some dispensationalists perhaps do and say, well, this is only speaking of the distant future. And that stone that dashes to pieces the golden image or whatever, that's the second coming of Christ. As Reformed Christians, none of us do that. We're not futurists, we're not preterists, we're not idealists, we're historicists. We're all historicists in the book of Daniel. And uh, perhaps when we get to the book of Revelation, we can develop that theme. Uh, But the point is, this is the historical prophetic roadmap for the old covenant people of God from Daniel's day leading up to the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see two major prophecies in the passages that we read. Both of them speak of the same basic timeline. Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, I think we'll see without the, you know, without the shadow of a doubt uh, that these are parallel prophecies. Each of them presents five kingdoms. So you're in Daniel chapter 2, and you see the fourfold statue of man, this picture of man-made rule, humanistic Babylonian government, uh, the the humanistic uh, kingdoms of men, and it comes in four installments, four different kingdoms, followed by the kingdom of the God of heaven, the stone cut without human hands that gains the victory. So you have five kingdoms, the four evil ones, and then comes the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Daniel chapter 7, you see the the true colors of this humanistic kingdom. They like to present themselves as a man 
as the, the image of God the domi- holding dominion with all of these precious stones, gold and silver and so on. But according to Daniel 7, it's very clear that they're just a bunch of wild animals. And so you have these four beasts, the, the, the great beasts out of the sea, Daniel 7, verse 3. And then that's interpreted in verse 17 as the four great beasts out of the earth. Uh, so again, uh, th- this is not just a warm, fuzzy feeling of ideas and themes. Th- there are specific interpretations of the imagery. They come out of the sea, and we're told, therefore, they're coming out of the nations of the earth, which is a typical biblical uh, way of interpreting that imagery of the sea. They come out of the sea, and it tells us that that means they came out of the, the earth, the nations of the earth. So, so you have something just like in some of the parables of Jesus, right? In uh, Matthew 13, you have the explanation for the parable of the wheat and the tares, and that gives you principles upon which to interpret the, the parables where there are not specific identifications of, of you know, the, the, um, the reapers are the angels and the harvest is the end of the age. You don't have that type of answer key in the back of the book for every one of the prophecies. Uh, but you do have the examples where Jesus clearly interprets a, a parable and then you can use that as a rubric, as a way of then interpreting similar language in other prophecies. And that's how Reformed Christians have historically interpreted these kinds of passages. But you, again, you have the four wicked kingdoms of men, the four wild beasts, followed by one who is the true image of the invisible God, uh, one who is like unto the Son of Man, uh, the, the humanistic kingdoms want to present themselves, Daniel too, as this, this gold and silver, this man ruling and reigning, but they're just a bunch of wild beasts. Behold the man. Daniel 7, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the only mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Behold the man. Behold your king. He stands there as one like unto the son of man, the, the true image of God and the true possessor of that dominion. We don't see all things placed under the feet of mankind, Hebrews 2 says, but we see Jesus. It's a beautiful picture of that fifth kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. Yes, he's just a stone. He's not a precious stone in the eyes of the world. He's not gold, silver, bronze. He's just a stone cut out of the mountain, and he dashes to pieces the kingdom of humanism, and yet we see him as one like unto the Son of Man, exalted with all dominion and power and honor and glory. So there are these two sets of uh, prophetic visions, five kingdoms in Daniel 2 and five kingdoms in Daniel 7. Uh, Let's dig in and take a look at these prophecies. First, Daniel chapter 2. We see this fourfold statue of man. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream Nebuchadnezzar perhaps can't even recall the dream, or perhaps he's putting his astrologers and soothsayers to the test to see if they know the dream. It's unclear, but the fact is we know for sure that Daniel was the only one of the people in the kingdom who could interpret this dream. So Daniel recounts the dream to the king, and then he interprets it. And this image is an image of a man. We said that's perfectly in keeping with 
uh, the scouting report on the kingdom of Babylon because it was a humanistic kingdom. And the head of this image is a head of gold, verse 32. This image's head was of fine gold. Verse 37. You, O king, are a king of kings. By the way, you see that reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's the king of kings, and we just say that, and we think, oh, that just means he's a really great king. This is a technical term for the world emperor. This is a term that's used of the emperors of Babylon, of the Medo-Persian empire, so on and so forth. This is a technical term. To say that Jesus is king of kings means that he actually rules over all the nations of the world, and that they answer to him. And so there's an element here. As we're unpacking these prophecies, uh, just in the terminology that's used, it reminds us of the significance of who Jesus is as the ultimate king of kings. But we're told, you, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. So we're not idealists. Uh, We're historicists, according to this. This is a specific kingdom. The head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. And you can see again the, the imagery of the dominion that God gave to man in the opening chapter of Genesis that uh, over all creation, you think of Psalm 8, and all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air placed underneath man. Babylon was claiming that dominion at the expense of the glory of God. And uh, you can see this imagery when we get to the Gospels in our series here on, on the optimistic view that the Bible has on the Great Commission and on the advance of the Gospel in world history. Uh, by the way, that's our theme. But uh, the, the, the fact is Jesus uses this illustration in Matthew 13 to speak of the tiny seed that's planted and then the massive tree that grows up and the birds of the air nest in its branches. It, it's, it's world empire language. Okay, So that's what it's saying. This first world empire is Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon. And then we know after Nebuchadnezzar, Eventually, if you go uh, throughout the the book of Daniel and you come to Nebuchadnezzar's, uh, likely his grandson, Belshazzar, in chapter 5, and the writing is on the wall, and his kingdom is taken from him, weighed in the balances and found wanting. And you know that that victory against Babylon, that conquest of Babylon, took place at the hands of the Medes and the Persians. So naturally, the second kingdom in this fourfold statue of man, the chest and arms of silver represents Medo-Persia. And when we speak of Medo-Persia, we understand, as is evident, we're going to see this, it's evident, every time Medo-Persia is mentioned, it has this emphasis on that there's two parts to it, right? In this case, you have the right hand and the left hand. The statue is, is, uh, uh, has these two elements, the right hand and the left hand, We'll see in the reference to this kingdom in Daniel chapter 7. And if you were to look at the reference to this kingdom at the beginning of Daniel chapter 8, there's always this duality because Darius the Mede joined forces with Cyrus the Persian. And that's how you get the Medo-Persian Empire. 
Darius the Mede was an older man. He was very influential, but his days of military conquest had come and gone. And so it was Cyrus, the younger yet stronger man, who eventually came to prominence in the Medo-Persian Empire. And I can't recall the exact relation, but uh, they were either related by marriage or uncle and nephew, something like that. They, the, uh, Darius and Cyrus were related. So there was this coalition that they brought together. But there's always two. There's, there's the two arms in this case. The arms of silver representing Medo-Persia, Darius the Mede, and Cyrus the Persian. Uh, verse 39 but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. Now you go to the book of Esther and you see the dinner party that Artaxerxes is throwing at the beginning of the book of Esther it is a sizable dinner party. It goes on for a long time and it involves uh, rulers and uh, vice regents from throughout his empire on multiple continents. It's a massive empire, but it's inferior to the Babylonian Empire. It wasn't quite as extensive or as influential or as powerful as the Babylonian Empire. And it's interesting, by the way, uh, Daniel sets forth that Babylon is the head of gold. He doesn't really have to, uh, you know, spoon feed us all the other interpretations, uh, partly because this hasn't happened yet, but also because once you know that the head is Babylon, you know, you can pretty much do the math. So the second one is the, the arms of silver are the Medes and the Persians. Again, verse 39, after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze. Now, the world empire that conquered the Persians was, of course, the Greeks. The belly and thighs of bronze represent the Greeks. And you'll see in subsequent prophecies, both in chapter 7 and in chapter 8, which we're not going to get to, that there seems to be an emphasis on uh, the fact that after Alexander the Great, on behalf of the Greek Empire, conquered the world, uh, eventually he died, as world emperors are, are, <laughs> seem to do, and the kingdom was split in four directions. So that's going to come out in chapter 7, and eventually in chapter 8, this breakup of his empire into four quadrants, four sections, uh, four regions. But in this case, at the very least, it's emphasized that it broke apart. You've got the belly and then the legs split it back together. So you've got the Medes and the Persians, eventually just the Persians conquered by the Greeks, but then now it's splitting again after the death of Alexander the Great. The belly and the thighs of bronze. And again, you can look back to verse 32, its belly and thighs of bronze. More is said of Alexander the Great, if, depending on how far we get in our sermon versus what we'll do next time. But if you're interested in a discussion of Alexander the Great, you'll see that in Daniel chapter 8, where the opening sections, the opening verses of that chapter deal with the transition from the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, which, is, which is highlighted by the fact that uh, he was in Shushan, the citadel, at the capital of the Persian Empire, okay, 
Verse 3, I lifted up my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. You've got Darius, because he's older, Cyrus coming up last, he's far more powerful, the Medes and the Persians. And I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west, this is Alexander the Great, across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, so the swiftness of the advance of his empire, unprecedented. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came, because it's a one-man show with the Greeks, there's just Alexander the Great up until his death. Then he came to the ram, uh, sorry, so there's the one notable horn. Um, Verse 9, then he came to the ram that had two horns, that's Medo-Persia, which I had seen standing beside the river and ran at him with furious power, and I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was power, no power in the ram to withstand him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. So that's Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire, conquering the Medo-Persians, and in particular, especially Cyrus. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. See, the Bible was written to make sense. Alexander the Great grew, grew very great, and when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in its place... Four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven, and out of the one of them, that's the Seleucid Empire, one of the four. You can read this in secular history. Go go to Wikipedia. It's all there, okay, Um, or wherever. And the Seleucid Empire, which was one of the four quadrants, and there came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, and it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host. So, so this little horn coming out of the Greek empire is from the Syrian Seleucid empire, and that is a reference to Antiochus Epiphanes, a bloodthirsty tyrant uh, who came after Alexander, who attacked the people of God, who magnified himself as some great figure and uh, defiled the temple by, in, in, in unspeakable ways and brought to a halt for a time the daily sacrifices. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 8. But all, this, all of this is clearly set forth in these prophecies. And uh, it's interesting, one of the nicknames in the Jewish intertestamental literature in the Apocrypha, one of the nicknames for, Alex, for Antiochus Epiphanes, that Syrian dictator who defiled the temple, one of his nicknames is the man of sin. The man of sin which Paul then picks up on in 2 Thessalonians 2 in saying that the man of sin and the son of perdition, that this sort of antichrist figure is going to be similar to Judas in that he'll be a false apostle and similar to Antiochus Epiphanes in that he will be a bloodthirsty persecuting dictator. So he'll have the false religious aspect and the the persecuting political aspect and... um, of course, that's not too difficult to see where he's going with that one. Uh, we, we see that in our confession. But the, the point here is, these things are, are very clearly set forth. Uh, 
and you have a transition to the, the belly and thighs of bronze. And then after Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, you have the legs of iron and the feet and toes of iron mixed with clay. This is a great and terrible empire. This is a kingdom that goes far beyond the previous kingdoms in its military might, in the extent of its conquest and its impact on world history. Uh, it, it's, it's not pictured as the most precious stone because there's, there's a sort of crass pragmatism to this empire. It, it doesn't have all the embellishments and the, the, you know, of the kingdom of Babylon, the fine gold, but it gets the job done with legs of iron and feet and toes of iron that's strong mixed with fragile clay. So you see that in Daniel 2, verse 33, the legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You see that in verses 40 through 43. The fourth kingdom, Notice the emphasis is on this fourth kingdom. It's in the days of these kings that God sets up his kingdom. And in chapter 7, Daniel pays little attention to the lion, the bear, and the leopard, the first three kingdoms. His focus is on, listen, tell me more about this ten-horned beast, the fourth kingdom. I want to know more about that one. And, of course, that that's, of course, should cause us to want to know more about that one. But verse 40, the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. So the Roman Empire uh, takes over big time. Verse 41, whereas you saw the feet and toes, uh, how many toes are on the human feet. Five per foot, ten. Okay, we're going to remember that number because uh, the, the ten toes, the ten horns, the ten kingdoms, this is a recurring theme that we're meant to take to heart in these prophecies. So you've got the feet and the ten toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. Well, what does that mean? Well, it tells us. The kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. So it's going to be a strong kingdom, as evidenced by the iron. And these ten toes on the feet uh, were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. Well, in what sense is it fragile? Well, it tells us. As you saw, iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay. So this empire, of course, the Roman Empire, uh, indisputably so. I don't think any Christian interpreter would view it any other way unless there's some radical futurist who sees this as a future Roman Empire, something like that. But the fact is that this Roman Empire would extend and expand its borders to such an extent, in such an irresponsible way, combining so many nations, so many ethnic groups, so many languages, so many people, so many cultures, so many religions, trying to build this sort of one world global empire that it's just flat out not sustainable. And uh, the, the 10 toes, of course, again, this is something that uh, historians from even, you know, 
thousands of years ago actually, uh, would recognize. Rome was set up in 12 basic kingdoms. When Rome fell, it fell and reduced to 10 kingdoms. The 10 kingdoms of Rome, which we could roughly speaking uh, refer to as uh, the, the Western European uh, Empire in terms of that, but we don't have time for that. Maybe we'll look at that at a, another time. But Rome, when it fell, because it was overextended and eventually uh, the natives were restless, as it were, and they invaded and, and this empire fell, it, it reduced to these 10 kingdoms, the 10 toes. It just didn't, it wasn't able to maintain its strength in the midst of such variety and so many nations. And of course, God has designed it to be that way, right? God it opposes the globalist ideology of Babel which seeks to put everything under one heading, under one king, under one tower uh, that reaches to the heavens. Uh, the Lord has commanded man to spread out throughout all the earth and to inhabit all the nations and to enjoy the, the various uh, uh, regions of the world to his honor and glory uh, with a sort of decentralized approach to government. But this is the Roman Empire, the fourth kingdom. And it was mighty, it was strong, and it was relentless, but it eventually fell apart. In the days of these kings, in the days of the kings, the emperors of Rome, the God of heaven, verse 44, will set up a kingdom. This is, we could say, the kingdom of the God of heaven. People ask the question, why is it in the gospel? Sometimes you have Jesus referring to the kingdom of God, sometimes the kingdom of heaven. And there are various theories, some of which are more or less persuasive. But uh, personally, I think this is the explanation. It's the kingdom of the God of heaven, six or half a dozen. It's the same idea. He's referring back to this kingdom from Daniel chapter 2, the kingdom of the God of heaven. It's a kingdom of God. It's a kingdom of heaven. However you want to say it, However the, the apostles in writing out the Gospels want to put it, it's the same kingdom. It's the equivalent. The kingdom of the God of heaven. He sets up this kingdom which shall never be destroyed. It shall not be left to other people. So this is the final kingdom. This will defeat and overthrow the humanistic dominance of the previous world empires. And it's set up in a very striking way because you don't have anything impressive. You don't have gold, you don't have silver, you don't have bronze, you just have a stone. And it's cut out of the mountain. It's not polished, it's not uh, precious in the sight of men, it's just a stone. The stone that the builders rejected. And this stone is hurled at the feet, at the Roman Empire, hurled at the feet of this humanistic kingdom of men and of Satan in this world, and it's hurled at the feet, and it breaks the feet. It, it, it's established, and it begins its global expansion in the days of the Roman Empire. It strikes the feet of the ten toes. It takes root in those regions, especially where the Roman Empire had held sway, and it breaks in pieces and consumes these kingdoms. That's language of gradual progressive expansion, not something that happens all at once. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day and it wasn't overthrown in a day, but it, it 
breaks in pieces and it consumes. It consumes. It gradually consumes that global empire of man. And we're told in as much as you saw, verse 45, that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. That's a reference to the deity of Christ. This is not a man-made kingdom. It's a kingdom of the God of heaven who sent his son and enthroned him on Zion's holy hill. Cut out of the mountain without hands. And that it broke in pieces the iron, but not just the iron. Notice, it's breaking in pieces all the nations of the world, all these various kingdoms. The bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. This is the establishment of Christ's kingdom in the earth in the first century, which then expands to the nations round about. Now, uh, we're going to touch on chapter 7. We'll see how far we get before our time is up. But chapter 7 of Daniel builds on this imagery and it presents this fourfold humanistic kingdom, the statue of man, as four wild beasts out of the sea, that is, out of the earth. Verse 3 and verse 17. The first kingdom, that of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, is presented as a lion. Notice verse 4, the clear reference to Nebuchadnezzar's experience when he took on the persona of a wild beast and had feathers and claws like a bird and this kind of description, and, and then was restored with a human mind. Notice, uh, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Very likely a reference to Nebuchadnezzar's conversion in chapter 4. We did a whole series on that some years ago. So that's Babylon, the, the, uh, the lion, uh, where this king, the king is given two feet to stand upright and a man's heart, uh, the, the, the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. Secondly, you have the bear. Uh, verse 5, suddenly another beast, a second like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said to it, uh, thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. Uh, so you can see it's raised up on one side. Chapter 8, you've got the, the, the one horn on the backside that's higher. This is a reference to Cyrus and his disproportionately high influence and power among the Persians versus the Medes. So this is the Medo-Persian Empire, which was ferocious. And uh, people try to figure out each of the three ribs. We'll leave that for somebody who knows more about history. But um, here you have the bear, Medo-Persia. Thirdly, you have the leopard, verse 6. After, I, after this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion, was given to it. Emphasis on dominion because Alexander's kingdom, again, was so far beyond uh, what had come before. Alexander the Great. And so there are four wings. Notice four heads, reminding us again that when he died, there were four heads of those four kingdoms, one of which was Antiochus Epiphanes, and we saw that in chapter 8. Fourthly, the ten-horned beast this beast is so terrible that it's not even identified with any known animal in that day. It's simply a ten-horned beast. Verse 7, 
After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible. It's the Roman Empire. Exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. So there's the iron from the previous vision, referring to Rome. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And we could talk about the uniqueness of the Roman Empire, but we don't have time. Uh, it was different, and it was more extensive, and it did have ten horns, ten toes, the, the spread out sections of the kingdom, of the empire, divided up into ten kingdoms, and their ten horns, which throughout Daniel and Revelation represents those ten kingdoms. So this is clearly Rome. He says, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up after them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. So you've got the ten kingdoms of Rome. Rome falls. You've got the ten kingdoms, the ten toes, okay? But in the midst of the ten kingdoms, another horn, not one of the ten, but a distinct horn that's within that Roman Empire, connected with Rome, connected with these kingdoms, and yet distinct. And it's a little horn. It grows up insignificantly, doesn't have the kind of political clout that the other kingdoms have, perhaps taken for granted, rising up as a, as a little horn. Uh, the, the other horns don't view it in any way as, as a threat. In fact, perhaps they find it to be a comfort. This little horn coming up from among them, and yet that horn very quickly takes a fraction of that Roman territory to itself. And that theme of, of that little horn taking that, those kingdoms to itself is developed then later in the book of Revelation. Uh, but John Knox preached his first sermon, his very first sermon on this text, demonstrating from it that the papacy is in fact the little horn. That among the kingdoms of Rome, there in the regions of the Western Empire, you have a little horn, the Bishop of Rome, and he arises as the kingdom is taken, taken away, as, the, as Rome falls and it's decentralized to the Ten Kingdoms. Among those kingdoms arises this little one, this ecclesiastical bishop, and he rises up. He has eyes like a man. He's an overseer. He's an overseer. He's an episkopos, scoping out from that watchman's wall. And he has a mouth speaking pompous words against the Most High. That's not a difficult one to, to, to demonstrate. And we're told that God brings judgment, verses 9 and following. Verse 11, uh, because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking, I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season. So the destruction of this little horn, the destruction of this pompous overseer who is not part of the political powers that be, but eventually gains prominence and political influence and unseats various regions of the empire and who speaks these pompous words against the Most High, this beast's destruction it's not the end of history, it's not the, it's not the final coming of Christ. Because the rest of the beasts had their dominion taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So this is a historical prophecy 
that we see unfolding out of the, the bowels of the Roman Empire, the rise of the papacy. Now, in conclusion, we're going to take this up next time, but in conclusion for our purposes this evening, what I want you to see is how clearly and intricately the Word of God has set forth this roadmap for human history leading up to the first coming of Christ. This is how God operates in the realm of Bible prophecy. It's not merely themes and ideas. It's not merely things that deal with the immediate context of the prophet or things that exclusively deal with the very end of history when Christ returns in glory. But the full scope of history is addressed from a biblical standpoint so that God's people can can experience the patience and comfort of the scriptures and find hope, as Paul says, so that we can know the basic developments of history, in this case prior to the first coming of Christ, so that God's people could anticipate it and they could see the rise and fall, nations rising up against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms, wars and rumors of wars, and be able to slot this in the general outline that God provided them in the book of Daniel so that they would have patience and comfort and hope And my friends, this is the very same message that we need to hear. Our sermon series is on the the heir of the world. Abraham's seed, the Lord Jesus Christ and his people are the heir of the world, Romans 4.13. And we see that the climax of of, um, Daniel chapter 7 uh, tells us something very encouraging. We're closing with this this word of encouragement that at the end of this process and on into the establishment of the kingdom of Christ and Daniel as he looks through the entire New Testament period until the final coming of Christ, here is his summary of the advance of the church through the gospel. Uh, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, he says, Behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days. This is not the second coming, it's the ascension of Christ. He comes to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. Then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Now, we we believe that. We all believe that He has dominion, glory, and a kingdom. But I just want you to look at the very specific technical terms that Daniel uses in this prophecy to describe the extent of this kingdom. Our thesis in this whole series has been that all nations will join together in a corporate profession of the true religion prior to Christ's return and listen to that theme as it is emphasized and as it is declared. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. This is telling us that the gospel will disciple the nations. This is telling us that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Is it possible for us to simply just quote this? If somebody asks, what's your view of the end times? What's your view of biblical eschatology? What's your outlook on history? How about we just quote this verse? That to Christ will be given dominion and glory, has been given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. 
not just should like they ought to, but this is saying that they will. Uh, all peoples, all nations, and all languages. We're nowhere near that. People who expect Jesus to return next week, I hope he does. I'd certainly be more con- content to be in heaven than to, you know, as much as I love Southfield. But the fact of the matter is, we're nowhere near that. We're nowhere near that. Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's not going to stop halfway through the project. And we can expect his kingdom to continue and to reach its goal and to bring honor and glory to him. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who alone gives us wisdom and insight into these mysterious prophecies. And yet we also thank you that your word has been so inspired by that same Spirit of God that in fact uh, the, the meanings of much of what is contained in these verses simply jumps off the page and gives us a better understanding and gives us uh, the patience and comfort of the scriptures which produces hope as we look at uh, the, the remaining phases of the kingdom that are yet to come. Come, Lord Jesus, accomplish all the things you promised to do and come quickly and bring in that glorious world to come. We pray in your name. Amen.